Father, we pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would speak to us through the power of your word and spirit. Give us clarity, give us understanding, and give us peace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to talk to you today about spiritual maturity. I want to talk to you about the components of spiritual maturity. Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that his goal, that his desire, that his purpose in all that he said and in all that he did in ministry was to present each one perfect in Christ. He says, I want you to know that my goal is not to present you perfect in the church. My goal is to present you perfect in Christ. My goal is not for you to be a perfect church attender. There's a difference between being perfect in the church and being perfect in Christ. A lot of people pride themselves in being perfect in the church. I attend every Sunday. I tithe every month. I learn all the songs. I listen to every sermon. I write down every text. I pray every day. I become perfect in the church. I'm perfect in my attendance. I'm perfect in my activity. I'm perfect in my participation in the church. And there's a, a point at which we have matured in the system of the local church, but not matured in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, my goal for you is that not that you would be perfect in the church, but that you would be perfect in Christ. My goal is to present you not as being mature within the system of the local church, but mature within the person of Jesus Christ. Why is this important? What's, this is important because when we grow up in the system of the local church, we learn to follow the rules of the local church. We learn to abide by the rules of the local church. We learn to abide by the culture of the local church. But you can find yourself doing things because it's what we do at our church, not because it's what my faith in Christ dictates that I do. We can find ourselves doing things because it's what the pastor said to do, not because it's what Jesus said to do. We can find ourselves participating in things because it's a part of the schedule of the church, not because it's a part of the heart of the disciple of Jesus Christ. And then what happens is you leave the church because you move out of town, you go away to school, and the structure of the local church is not there, and you find that you don't do any of the things that you did when you were in the structure of the local church. If you prayed every day because the church prayed every day, but then you move away from the church and you don't pray anymore, you were mature in the church, not mature in Christ. If you went to church every Sunday because your church called, encouraged you to go to church every Sunday and there was peer pressure to go to church every Sunday, but then you go to another place and you don't go to church every Sunday, you find that you are mature in the church and not mature in Christ. So we want to begin to talk about what are the marks of maturity in Christ. What does it mean to be perfect in Christ? Now, the first thing we need to say is that word perfection doesn't mean the same thing to us today as it meant in Paul's day. When we think of perfection, it's an Aristotelian concept. Perfection is this concept of having no flaws, having no blemishes, doing everything exactly right. There's a sense of exactitude. There's a sense of precision to our concept of perfection. That's not what Paul was talking about. When he used the word perfect, he was using the word telos, which has to do with maturity or completion. When he says to present each one perfect in Christ, he meant to pre present each one fully mature, fully grown up, finished in Christ, that is, finished with the process of development that God set out for you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. How many know that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you began a process of spiritual development that God prescribed for you that takes you all the way up to the end of your life? How many know that? We used to sing the song when I was little, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. 
It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the moon and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. And how many can say he's still working on me today? Come on, somebody. Now, we can cooperate with the process of maturity in Christ or we cannot cooperate. Paul says this process of maturity in Christ is not a passive thing. It, it, it is not true to say the longer you're saved, the more mature you become. You can be saved for 50 years and be just as immature as you were when you got saved 50 years ago. Amen. Just because you've been in the church a long time doesn't mean you're more mature. Amen. You can be less mature today than you were when you first got saved if you are completely non-intentional about your process of growth in Christ. Growth in Christ is God's work, but it requires your participation. Amen. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, growth in Christ is God's work, but it requires your participation. If you don't participate, you're not going to grow. If you don't cooperate with the Spirit of God, you are not going to grow. So Paul says, I want you to know, this is kind of my manifesto. I want you to know before we start day one that everything I say, everything I write, everything I do, he says, for this cause we labor. I'm laboring among you for this end. I'm working hard. I'm, I'm shedding my sweat, blood, and tears for this one thing to present you perfect in Christ. I'm waking up early in the morning and I'm praying and I'm weeping before you as I preach to you. And I, sometimes it feels like I'm coming down hard on you, not because I'm trying to manipulate you or conform you to some earthly standard. I'm trying to present you perfect, mature, complete in Christ. I'm trying to provoke you to growth in Christ. I'm trying to stimulate you to greater growth in Christ. I want to present you perfect in Christ. Amen. Now, I want us to begin to understand the components of spiritual maturity. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? What does it look like to be fully grown in Christ? What does that look like? The first component of spiritual maturity that I'd like to talk about today is spirit fullness. Spirit fullness is the first mark of spirit maturity. You cannot be spiritually mature without being full of the Holy Spirit. To think that you can be spiritually mature apart from the living presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely ridiculous. That's like thinking you can be a great basketball player without a basketball. That's like thinking you can be a professional swimmer without ever getting in a swimming pool. Spiritual maturity requires the presence of the Holy Spirit. You must be full of the Spirit of God. If you are not living a life that is characterized by spirit fullness, you are not spiritually mature. I don't care if you know all the words to the songs. I don't care how many scriptures you've memorized. Satan has memorized a lot of scriptures, but he does not have the Holy Spirit of God. The first mark of spiritual maturity is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when I'm talking about spirit fullness, I'm talking about the daily awareness of the overwhelming presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm talking about a daily fellowship with the living presence of God. I'm not talking about a theology. I'm not talking about a list of doctrines. I'm not talking about a group of certitudes about things that are true about you because you're saved. I'm talking about a living and growing and ever-increasing awareness of the fact that God lives in me by His Holy Spirit. And He not only lives in me, but He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I am His own. Are you with me today? Spirit fullness is the first mark of spirit maturity. Matter of fact, spiritual maturity is about being fully alive to God and fully dead to the flesh. Amen. To the degree that you are dead to God, you are immature. Uh -huh. And to the degree that you are alive to the flesh, you are immature. Uh -huh. If you are dead to God, it means he can speak to you, but you don't hear him. Uh -huh. 
Paul says that you were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, which meant that God could stand right in your face and tell you how much he loved you, but you couldn't hear him. Why? Because you can't hear when you're dead. It means that God could wrap his arms around you and show you his love, but you can feel it. Why? Because you can't feel when you're dead. It means that God could send you all kinds of warnings not to turn to the left or the right, but you turn anyway. Why? Because you can't hear when you're dead. You can't yield when you're dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, it meant you were completely and totally insensitive to the Spirit of God. It meant the Spirit could try to prompt you, but you would not be prompted. It would mean the Spirit would try to stop you, but you could not be stopped. It meant the Spirit would try to warn you, but you would not be warned. It would mean the Spirit would try to shape you, but you would not be shaped. When you are alive to God, when you have been broken out of your transgressions and sins, when you've been brought from death to life, and suddenly you're alive to God, suddenly God whispers to you and you stop and you hear. And the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and you stop and you consider. It's a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. It's a sensitivity to the presence of God. Spirit fullness is about being sensitive to God. It's about being alive to God, but it's also about being dead to the flesh. You see, because when you're alive to the flesh, the flesh calls you and you come. When you're alive to the flesh, the flesh tells you to turn left and you turn left. But when you are dead to the flesh, the flesh calls you and you can't even hear it because you can't hear when you're dead. When you're dead to the flesh, the flesh tries to tempt you, but you can't be tempted when you're dead. Come on, somebody. I'm sorry I'm, I'm so crazy this morning because I haven't preached here in so long and I, I, I love being with you so much. I'm so thankful. To be back here. <laughs> so the first mark of spiritual maturity is spirit fullness. The second mark of spiritual maturity is boldness. Boldness. Now the word boldness in the Greek is parecia. Say parecia. Parecia is the ability to stand up and do what you're supposed to do. Say what you're supposed to say. And then sit down knowing that you've done it and said it. Boldness is the ability to stand up and do what you're supposed to do. Speak what you're supposed to speak and then sit down and know that you've done it and said it. If you operate in boldness, you can go home knowing I said what needed to be said. I did what needed to be done. The opposite of boldness is lack of self-confidence where you walk away going, man, I should have said this. Oh, man, I should have said that. Oh, should I have done that? Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Oh, man, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have did this. Oh, man, should I have done that? You walk home and you're doubting yourself and you're second guessing yourself and you have no clue whether what you're doing is right or wrong because you lack boldness. Boldness is when you stand up and say, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to say and I'm about to say it and I don't care if you like it or don't like it. I don't care if you like me or don't like me. I'm full of the Holy Ghost. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, when they saw the parousia of Peter and John, when they saw the boldness, what was the boldness of Peter and John? They healed the lame man at the gate beautiful. And then they stood before the Sanhedrin and said, Psh, we don't have to be careful in talking to you. Shoot, you better put some respect on my name. They said, don't preach in that name anymore or we'll kill you. He said, do you tell me whether we should obey God or obey you? They were like, dang, did you hear that? Man, there's some gangsters. We better let them go. And when they saw the boldness 
the parousia of Peter and John. No second guessing themselves. No doubt about whether are we doing the right thing or are we not doing the right thing. Are we saying the right thing or are we not saying, no, the boldness of Peter and John. They marveled that these men had never studied letters. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have master's degrees in theology. They didn't study Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. These men had never studied letters. Matter of fact, the word they used was idiotes. It's where we get the word idiots from. They perceived that these men were idiotes, meaning unlearned, unstudied, uneducated men, but they had boldness. How do you have boldness when you have not, when you don't have a master's degree? Why? Because my boldness doesn't come from a master's degree. It doesn't come from a piece of paper on the wall. It doesn't come from the number of books that I've read. It doesn't come from the number of units that I've completed. They took note that they had been with Jesus. My boldness comes from being with Jesus. And you know when I've been with Jesus because I'm bold when I come out of that room. Come on, somebody. The second mark of spiritual maturity is boldness. The third mark of spiritual maturity is wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding is the ability to see beneath the surface of a situation, circumstance, or context. It's the ability to look between the, beneath the surface. When you have wisdom and understanding, you look at something that looks good, but the Holy Spirit prompts your heart and you realize it's not good even though it looks good. And when you have wisdom and understanding, you look at something that looks bad, but the Holy Spirit shows you beneath the surface and you see that it's not bad. When you have wisdom and understanding, you're never moved by what you see in the natural because you walk by faith and not by sight. When you have wisdom and understand, you walk through a trial and suddenly you're able to see what's on the other side of that trial and what's behind the trial and suddenly you begin to perceive. You know who had wisdom and understanding was Joseph. Joseph had wisdom and understanding because he was able to say to his brothers at the end, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It looked like a completely bad situation, but I'm able to see that God turned a bad situation into a good situation. Why? Because I've got wisdom and understanding. You see, when you lack wisdom and understanding, you're stuck in your bad situation. When you lack wisdom and understanding, you're stuck in your trial. When you lack wisdom and understanding, the sign that you lack wisdom and understanding is that you're stuck. Because if you feel stuck, you simply don't have the wisdom to know where you are right now. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are never stuck. Because for you to be stuck, God would have to be stuck. For you to be stuck, God would have had to stop working on you. For you to be stuck, God would have had to stop moving. Like God, like God, like God just said, you know what? I don't know what to do here. <laughs> the father just looks at Jesus. I'm at a loss. Do you know? Holy Spirit, <laughs> let's just call a council of the angels. I don't know what we should do. God is never stuck, and so you are never stuck. Greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. When God begins to give you wisdom and understanding, you're able to see above your trials, around your trials, beneath your trials, behind your trials, beside your trials. You're, a, you're able to see right through the midst of your trials. And you know that greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. Wisdom gives you the ability to see that no weapon forged against you will prosper. That every tongue that rises up in judgment against you, you will refute. Come on, somebody. The next mark of spiritual maturity is righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is simply the ability to be right with God. It is a transformation of heart in which your heart was wrong, but God made it right. And because God took your wrong heart and turned it into a right heart, then your wrong actions naturally become right actions. It is an external way of living that comes from an internal transformation. Righteousness is about doing right because now you are right. Before you became righteous, you did wrong because you were wrong. Let me tell you something. You cannot be right but do wrong. If you're doing wrong, it means something in you ain't right. 
and God needs to give you the gift of righteousness. Now, let me tell you that we're all growing in righteousness. There's many parts of your heart that are right, and that's why you do right in those areas. But there's some parts of your heart that God is still making right so that you can do right in those areas. And the mark of spiritual maturity is righteousness. And at the end of the journey, you're going to be so righteous that I'll be able to look at your life if you cooperate with the process of God. If you cooperate, if you wake up every day and cooperate with the Spirit, He will bring you into such a righteousness that every component of your life has been made right. Isn't that powerful? Now, holiness, the word holiness, kodesh in the Hebrew, hagios in the Greek, it means separate, different, in a different category. When God makes you righteous internally and you begin to do righteousness externally, the result is that you live differently from the rest of the world. And that's what it means to be holy. It means to live differently from the rest of the world. And it means to live differently from the way you used to live before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. So when God makes you righteous, you are different. So you act different. You live different. Therefore, you are holy. And that's when, you know, my, what we were talking to my wife yesterday, how many know she used to do cocaine? <laughs> yeah, a little sunny. You never knew she did cocaine. She did cocaine. She did coke. She used to snort lines of coke all night long. She was doing that at parties when she was in high school. That was B.C. That was before Christ. That was before she surrendered her life to Christ. But when she surrendered her life to Christ, there was such a radical transformation in her life that her friends didn't recognize her anymore. Why? Because suddenly there's a difference. You're not only different from the world, you're different from the you that you used to be before God came into your life and made you different. All of a sudden, you've got the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You've got boldness. You know what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. You've got righteousness so that you are right before God. You live right before others. And you've got holiness. You're different. You've got wisdom and understanding to see around and beneath and above and beside your problems. How powerful is that kind of life? And that's not even all of it. i got one more characteristic of spiritual maturity I want to share with you this morning. I'm going somewhere today. Stay with me. Keep the camera moving because I'm moving kind of quick. The last component of spiritual maturity is direction and clarity. Direction and clarity. It means that you know where your life is going. It means you see where you've come from and you can see where you are and you can see where you're going. Direction and clarity is not only understanding that God does have a plan for your life, but understanding what that plan for your life is. Direction and clarity means that you come to a crossroads in your life and at that crossroads, at that moment where you can turn to the left or to the right, go straight ahead or turn around and go back, God sovereignly speaks to you by his spirit and presence and says, this is the way, walk in it. Direction and clarity is knowing at every season of your life that the path you're taking, that the way you're going is God's path for your life. It is knowing, I know the will of God. I might not know every component of why, but I know he told me to walk this way. I may not know what the end result of this path will be, but I know he told me to walk this way. I may not know what I'm going to encounter along this path, but I know he told me to walk this way. Let me tell you something. If you don't know he told you to walk the way you're walking, maybe that's why you got so much anxiety and fear in your life. But if you know that you're walking the way he told you to walk, that's enough to drive out anxiety. That's enough to drive out shame and fear. I know that there might be briars and thorns on the way, but he told me to walk this path and where his finger guides, his hand provides. Come on, somebody. Amen. Yeah, that's right. That's good. I got boldness. <clears throat> now, the question is, how do I get some of that? If I recognize levels of spiritual immaturity in my life, how do I get some maturity? 
If I look at my life and say, I don't even have step one. I don't have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. I feel, I feel devoid of the presence of God every day. I don't feel like I'm in fellowship with God every day. How do I get some of that spirit fullness? Yeah. I don't have any boldness. I'm constantly second guessing myself. I'm constantly feeling like I'm going the wrong way and doing the wrong thing. How do I get some boldness? I don't have righteousness. There's some areas of my life in where I'm living in sin and can't seem to break free. How do I get some righteousness and holiness? I don't have any wisdom and understanding. I'm always feeling stuck like my trial is the great reality of my life and I can't get around it. How do I get some of that clarity and direction for my life? How do I become spiritually mature? Now, last week, we actually talked about the first component of the key to spiritual maturity. And today, we're going to talk about the second component of the key to spiritual maturity. But first, let me say that the key to spiritual maturity, the key to spiritual maturity is repentance. Yes. The key yes. to spiritual maturity is repentance. Yes. In Acts chapter 2, this was Peter's Pentecost sermon that he preached. And at the end of his sermon, in verse 37, the scripture says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what are we supposed to do now? And Peter responded, repent. When they said, what are we supposed to do? What they were saying was, how do we get some of this spiritual maturity stuff? There's something we're missing, and we need to get it. How do we get it? Peter said, repent. Repent. A lot of folks try to skip that step. Try to go straight to believe. But you can't believe until you first repent. It's very popular in our day and age to have a gospel of Jesus that is devoid of repentance. Just come into the kingdom. Waltz right into the kingdom. Call God your father. Call Jesus your savior, but you never repented. Can I tell you that that's a lie? Can I tell you that that's a cul-de-sac, not a path? Can I tell you you're going to be stuck in the same place indefinitely until you repent? However, I must say that repentance is not what most of us think it is. Because when most of us think of repentance, we think of saying, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. How many know that I'm sorry is empty? You ever had somebody say sorry to you over and over and over again for the same thing? I'm sorry, but you knew that they actually didn't understand why they were sorry, what they were sorry for, what's wrong with what they did, and they definitely had not made a decision not to do it to you again. What they were saying when they say I'm sorry is, can you please just be okay with me because I just want you to be okay with me because I just need things to be okay. That is not repentance. Repentance has Two components. The first we talked about last week is surrender. If you didn't listen to Pastor Sonny's sermon from last Sunday, you need to listen to it on the podcast. I preached a similar sermon on the same passage of scripture at our San Francisco campus. Both those sermons are on the podcast. Surrender. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you've got obedience, that's cool, but one thing you lack, surrender. Go sell everything. Give the money. Come and follow me. Surrender. The second component of repentance is desperation. Repentance is the place at which desperation and surrender collide. Repentance is the place at which surrender and desperation collide. Surrender plus desperation equals repentance. If you got surrender but no desperation, that's not quite repentance. If you've got desperation but no surrender, that's not quite repentance. And if you're lacking real substantial change in your life, you're missing one of the two yeah. or both. But at the very moment where surrender 
collides with desperation. Repentance transpires and repentance moves heaven. When true repentance transpires, heaven is moved and change occurs in your life. Now, I want to talk about desperation because this is a key. Desperation has two components. The first is urgency and the second is desire. You are not desperate until you urgently desire. If there's no urgency, it means, yeah, I hope God does it one day, but, you know, one day he'll do it. You know, I just thought I'd just hang around and, you know, if I just... Let me tell you something. Spiritual transformation does not happen through osmosis. <laughs> you think, if I just kind of hang around at the church, if I hang around at the church, some of that will rub off on me. And, you know, if I hang around with godly people, some of that will rub off on me. You can go to hell, hang around with godly people. Because them godly people can't stand before God on your behalf. The last thing you want to do is hang with godly people but never become a godly person and hear God say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. There's a lot of people hanging with godly people who's going to end up in the lake of fire, my friend. Oh, I didn't come here to tickle the ears. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by repentance. It doesn't happen by hanging out with repentant people. You must become a repentant people. It's not enough to know that your mama is praying for you. It's not enough to know that your grandmama prayed for you. It's not enough to know that your dad and your mom are at home praying. If you don't start praying for yourself, what happened when Peter preached his Pentecost sermon? He says, they, say, they, they were cut to the heart. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, brothers, what, what shall we do? Do you hear the urgency? What shall we do right now? This is one thing that's missing at church is you go to church and you hear a word, but there's nothing in your heart that says, I've got to change right now. You hear a word and you think, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to reflect on that for a while. I need to get that podcast and listen to that again. But there's no urgency in you that says, I got to shift right now. Can I tell you that all you may have is right now? You have no clue if you're going to have tomorrow. Urgency. Now, whenever you hear God, whenever you hear God's word, there should be urgency in your heart. If your heart has not responded with urgency, there has been no repentance. And every time we hear God's word preached, we should repent. Every time, the posture of my heart should be, God, what are you doing in me now? What are you requiring of me now? I should be ready to run to the altar because it's got to be now. What shall we do now? That's urgency. Men and brethren, what shall we do? There was an urgency. Tell us what to do right now because I don't want to live in this situation for another day, not another hour, not another minute. If you're thinking I'll repent of my sins later, I'll get over my stuff later, I'll find God later, I'll commit my life to Jesus later, you may not have a later. That is not repentance. That is called laziness and foolishness. And one of the saddest realities is that you can feel good about yourself because you've come to the house of God over and over again, over and over again. And you think, well, I'm doing good because I keep going to church and I'm doing good because I keep going to church. But church can't save you. You're not going to stand before the throne of church at the end of the age. You're going to stand before the throne of God. And he's going to say, you should have dealt with me. Urgency. 
And second, desire. Desire. Earnest desire. How do you get spirit fullness? What did Jesus say in John chapter 5? What is it, verse 56 or 57? Let him who is thirsty come unto me and drink. Jesus, God is ready to give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks, but there's one prerequisite. You've got to be thirsty. You've got to be thirsty. If you're not thirsty, you ain't ready for the Holy Spirit yet. You're not thirsty yet. That's one of the great problems is that I'm not thirsty. I can't find thirst. How do you get wisdom? Proverbs chapter 2. If you cry out after knowledge, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek them as silver, if you search for them as for hid treasures, you see that earnest desire. Why is there no wisdom? Because you're not earnestly desiring it. There's no thirst. There's no hunger. What's the song of Mary? He has filled the hungry with good things, but the proud he has turned away empty. And who are the proud? Those who are not hungry. Lack of spiritual hunger is a sign of spiritual pride. If I'm not hungry, I'm proud. Because I, th- I just think I got what I need. I just, I got, hey, I'm doing good. How you doing spiritually? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. What are you hungering for? Well, you know, I, I, I'm doing good. Yeah, you ain't spiritually, you're not doing good. Hunger. How do you get clarity and direction? You know Jeremiah 29, 29, 11? Jeremiah 29? Yeah. How many know Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah. Like most, people, most believers know Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Yeah. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. That's an incredibly encouraging scripture, isn't it? But how many know verse 12? That's it. Come on now. Come on. That's it. Then you will come to me yes. and call upon me yes. and sit, search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found of you, says the Lord, when you search for me with all of your heart. Do you realize you don't have access to verse 11 without verse 12? You don't have clarity or direction in your life because you're not hungry enough to know what God thinks about your present situation. Hungry enough to seek him. Hungry enough to search him out. And the great problem, the reason why there's such a lack of urgency and desire in the body of Christ is because many people come to church for the wrong reasons. We know we come to church to get right, but you just came to church to get right with the wrong person. See, some people come to church to get right with themselves. Why do you come to church? Because I had so much anxiety in me, and I've had so much self-doubt and low self-esteem, and I've got depression, and I just want to feel better about myself. The problem is you came to church to get right with you, not to get right with God. And that leads to disillusionment, because six years later, you're still not right with you. And then you start thinking, this Christianity thing is not working. But the problem is you came to get right with you instead of to get right with God. Some folks come to get right with other people. Why are you coming to church? Because my wife left me and I thought I better come to church so that I can get my life together so maybe my wife will take me right, take me back. You say, well, you came to church to get right with your wife, not to get right with God. Let me tell you something. There's not enough church you can come to that'll make her take you back. And don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to come to church if your wife left you. I've seen so many people come to church because my girlfriend dumped me, so I'm coming to church. And how many know that that's short-lived? Unless you come to the place where you recognize that we come to church to get right with God and that getting right with God is the most urgent concern of my life. Until you come to the place where you recognize that it's more important for you to get right with God than yourself or anyone else, no transformation will ever transpire in your life. But when you recognize, I'm coming to get right with God. You know what? When you get right with God, he makes you right with yourself. And when you get right with God, he makes you right with others. 
And that don't mean your wife will come back. Maybe she will, maybe she won't. Hopefully she will, but you know what? You might have messed up too bad for that. That's just the reality. That's just the truth. But at the very least, if you can walk rightly before God, he's able even to take your broken life and put it back together again. Men and brethren, what shall we do? I'm desperate to know what to do right now. I'm desperate. I'm hungry. I'm hungry for wisdom from God. I'm hungry for the presence of God. I'm hungry. I'm desperate. But I'm not only desperate, I'm surrendered. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks over the years have come into the house and, and they'll come to me and say, I want you to disciple me. And I'll say, okay, let's schedule a meeting. So we sit down and meet. And the first thing they do is start giving me the plan. All right, so here's what we're going to do. <laughs> You're going to meet with me every week, and then I'm going to read these books and report this to you. And it's like, uh, sounds like you're discipling yourself. <laughs> That's the opposite of surrender. People come to God, and they do the same thing. They're like, they come to the house of God, but instead of crying out, Lord, what shall I do? They say, okay, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to give my tithe. I'm going to learn the songs. I'm going to serve a ministry in the house, and then hopefully you'll fix my life, right? Hook a brother up. You going to hook me up? Is that, is that how it works? It starts with surrender, and it starts with desperation. And when desperation and surrender collide, when that gathering standing before the apostles were cut to the heart and they cried out, what shall we do? Peter says, here's what you do. You repent. You get baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, to as many or as afar off, even to as many as the Lord our God shall call. I say to you today by the word of the Lord that God is waiting to pour out upon your life a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit than you could ever believe. But you got to get hungry and you got to get desperate. You got to surrender and you got to get hungry. But if you get hungry and you surrender to God, I'm telling you that desperation and surrender will result in the release of a heavenly provision that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. I'm telling you that you can walk in the fullness of the Spirit. You don't have to live outside of the presence of God every day. You can live every day with the, the indwelling presence of God. You can live every day with a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. But it starts with desperation and surrender. I'm telling you that you don't have to self-doubt all the time and have low self-esteem all the time. I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is able to give you boldness. I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is able to give you wisdom. He's able to give you understanding. He's able to direct your path and give you clarity in the way you go. But it starts with desperation and it starts with surrender. It simply starts with coming to God saying, I'm not here to give you the plan. I need you to give me the plan. I'm not here to tell you the way. I need you to tell me the way. I'm not here with a list of stuff that I need you to do on my behalf and then I'll serve you. I'm I'm here to surrender my list to you. I'm here to surrender my agenda to you. You tell me what the agenda is. You tell me what the plan is. I'm not here to tell you what I want from you. I'm here for you to tell me what you want from me. Surrender and desperation. And desperation is the thing that we need most right now. Desperation. But the question that's in our hearts is how do I get some desperation? Because, you know, it's really hard to, like, try to be desperate. <laughs> you realize, I'm not desperate. Ah! <laughs> what are you doing? Well, desperate people scream, so I thought maybe if I scream, ah! I'm still not desperate. How do I get desperate? 
You know how you get desperation? You ask God for it. Maybe you're not filled with desperation, with holy desperation for God, but maybe you can at least get desperate to be desperate. Maybe you don't even feel a desire for God, but at least you can feel a desire for a desire for God. (laughs) And maybe you don't even feel a desire for a desire for God, but at least you can have a desire for a desire for a desire for God. In other words, if you can activate whatever level of desire you have right now, I'm telling you that there's some element of desperation that's already in your heart right now. Because he has dealt to each and every one of us a measure of faith. And matter of fact, there is a God-shaped void in each and every heart. There's a part of you that already hungers and thirsts for God. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to clean anything out to find it. It's there. If you can simply identify whatever iota of desire for God you have and just latch onto that and say, God, this is all I've got. This is all I've got. But God, can you give me more desire for you? This is all I've got. Sometimes I feel like an urgency to pray and it lasts 30 seconds. Can you make it last 45 seconds? Maybe it lasts one minute. Can you make it last two minutes? God, this is all I got, but can you give me more? If you steward the desire for God that you already have, God will give you more. Because he who is faithful with little will be trusted with much. You see, God's not just going to open the windows of heaven and give you great desire. You're not ready to steward great desire yet. But he'll give you more desire than you have right now. If you steward what you have right now, but every day you've got to activate it. You've got to activate it. It's almost like being married. Because when you fall in love, there's that infatuation stage where you you don't have to do nothing. I remember when I fell in love with Sunny, she would walk in the room and the hairs would stand up on the back of my neck. And I'm bald. I ain't even got no hairs. I would have phantom hairs. Ooh. Just feel electricity in the atmosphere. She'd walk in the room and I'd just be warm all over. I would just, just smile from ear to ear. You know what? It doesn't happen that way anymore. That infatuation stage can't last for the rest of your life. And a lot of times, couples, you leave that infatuation stage and you think something's wrong with your marriage. No, it's not. Now you can actually learn healthy love because healthy and mature love means that I activate and I steward the love that I know is in my heart for you, even if I don't always feel it. I know how to turn it on. Mature love says, I know that I love you deep in my heart. I will never question that again. But In absence of feeling, I've got decision, I've got faithfulness, and I've got stewardship. And you know what happens when I'm faithful to my stewardship? When I turn that on, I start to feel again. This is what it's like in your relationship with God. Some of you, when you got saved, by the way, some of you, when you got saved, it was like an angelic visitation. Doesn't that make you mad when you meet somebody who got saved like that? (laughs) Say, how did you get saved? An angel from heaven came to me, and and fire fell from heaven, and this... (laughs) Then Jesus himself appeared. And you you see people who get saved through like super dramatic, super prophetic, super supernatural. He's like, man, I just started coming to church. (laughs) How'd you get saved? Well, I heard the preacher and it sounded good. I was like, I think I need that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then you're like, am I really saved? Because I ain't seen no angels. And, you know, I didn't have no, I didn't have any fire fall from heaven on me. (laughs) You know, you know what? If you read the Bible, not many people got that. You remember the 12 Jesus called, right? The 12 disciples, 12 of them. He went out to the lake and said, you come and follow me and I'll make you a fisherman. But you realize there were 120 that followed whom he never called. There was 120 who said, I'm following him. You say, well, he, did he call you? Well, until he tells me to leave, I'm coming. <laughs> he didn't tell me to leave, so I'm coming. Do you realize when he would take the disciples in the inner room and teach them the, the meaning of the parables that there were 120 people outside the room with their heads inside the windows listening in? 
He had more than 12 disciples. He had 120 disciples. They followed him everywhere he went. The, the 120 were those who simply heard the word and believed it. The 12 were those whom he called personally in a dramatic and supernatural way. Just because you're not one of the 12 doesn't mean that you're less significant in the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean that your discipleship is not as powerful or is not as real. It simply means you've got to steward the fact that you've made a decision to come and follow Jesus and you've heard the truth and the life in him and you're making a decision to steward that. And so all you got to do is come to the Lord with whatever level of desire you have and say, God, I desire to desire you. God, I desire to desire to desire you. Lord, I, I'm desperate to be desperate to be desperate to be desperate for you. However many levels you've got to go out, just break one of those down. So now I'm desperate to be desperate to be desperate for you. And the next, now I'm desperate to be desperate for you. And finally, you'll find I'm desperate for you, Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Why? That's how I cooperate with the work of the Spirit in my life. That's how I cooperate with the work of the Spirit of God in bringing me to a place of maturity in Christ. I'm calling you to make a decision today. Whatever level of desperation you've currently, you're currently at, ask God to take it up a notch. Because when you read the Bible, you find that the people who knew him most, who were closest to him, were the most desperate. The people who were the closest to him desired him the most and the people who were the furthest out from him desired him the least God wants to increase the level of your desperation and by increasing the level of your desperation and your surrender your repentance becomes complete and when your repentance becomes complete your transformation becomes real and it's crazy stuff that God can break off of your life in a second because suddenly desperation and surrender collided in your life yes. and you truly repented. Yes. Without that level of true repentance, you walk away from your prayer time with, with the resolve in your heart to try harder. And no matter how hard you try, I guarantee you, you're going to fail. The work is to come to a place of desperation and surrender because when you come to that place, and you know, and by the way, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm lingering here for a second because I feel the Holy Spirit working on hearts. The opposite of surrender is excuses. The more we make excuses for our sin, well, I didn't get my needs met. Well, you should see the way she talks to me. My boss never gave me a chance. The more we excuse ourselves, the further we are from repentance. You can tell you've come to the place of surrender because you drop all your excuses. And when you come before God saying, God, there is no excuse. It's me standing in the need of prayer. No transformation can happen in your life as long as you're making excuses for yourself. Surrender is the place of radical responsibility before God. It's me, God. I can't blame anybody else. It's me. When you come to that place of surrender, and you come to that place of surrender when you're desperate enough for deliverance, desperation actually unlocks surrender. Why is he preaching so hard to us? Hadn't been here in weeks, and he comes in whipping folks. 
It's because we're standing right on the cusp of a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But God wants to get us ready. Let every heart prepare him room. He said, prepare the way of the Lord. God wants to get us ready for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want it to pass us right by. But he's calling us to deeper desperation and deeper surrender. Let's pray. Bow your heads. Lord, I pray that you would unlock my surrender and that you would unlock my desperation for you. Lord, at every place in my life in which I've become passive, at every place in my life in which I've become apathetic, at every place in my life in which I have embraced a lifestyle of self-sufficiency, where I'm trying to forge my own plans. I'm trying to straighten my own way. I'm trying to fix my own soul. I'm trying to be my own redeemer. Every time I fall down, I get up and I say, okay, God, here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to do. All right, God, here's the plan. Here's what I'll do this time. I'll tell you what I'm going to do this time, Lord. I'm going to go on a fast. I'll tell you what I'm going to do this time, Lord. I'm going to increase my tithe. I know what I'll do now, Lord. I'll go to extra prayer meetings. Here's what I'll do. As long as I'm telling the Lord what I'm going to do, I'm not desperate enough yet to come to a place of surrender. But Lord, I pray today that you would take us to the place at which we are able to see the bankruptcy of our own efforts. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. All of my attempts to be righteous before you amount to nothing more than filthy rags. But when I come to the place where I say, Lord, I don't have the plan. So I need you. If you don't help me, I'm lost. If you don't help me, I'm lost. If you don't help me, I'm lost. God, if you don't help me, I'm lost. What shall I do? All of my plans have come to nothing. All of my efforts have come to nothing. I haven't been able to figure it out. I haven't been able to break it on my own. I haven't been able to fix me. But Lord, you're able to fix me. So you tell me, what should I do? I can't earn it. I can't earn it. I can't achieve it. I can never be enough, a good enough Bible study student. I can never be studious enough. I could never be pious enough. I can never be disciplined enough. Some of you here today, you think your problem is you're not disciplined enough. Man, if I just had more discipline, I could do this. That's still your plan. Your problem is not a lack of discipline. It's a lack of desperation. Lord, I need to be more desperate. Thinking I need more discipline is still believing that if I exert myself enough, I can do better for me and I can do better for you. But God, it's bankrupt. I can't do better for you and I can't do better for me. 
But Lord, you can do better for me. And you can work in me to do better for you. And so, Lord, I surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. But I not only surrender, I surrender right now. Lord, I break that lie of the enemy that speaks to hearts and say, just surrender later. You'll surrender later. You'll work on surrender. No, I surrender now. I surrender right now. I'm not walking out of this room without surrendering to Jesus. I'm not walking out of this room with the facade that one day I'll come to that place and one day, one day I'll, one day I'll lay it down. I lay it down today. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right now. But Lord, I need you to tell me what do I do? Holy Spirit, come right now and breathe on these slain. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come right now and breathe. Breathe in this place. Holy Spirit, do it, God. Only you can do it. Only you can bring us to that place where our desperation meets our surrender. Only you can bring us to that place of true repentance. I lay it down. Lord, I want to want you. I need to need you. I'm desperate to be desperate for you. I desire to desire you. Lord Jesus, Increase my desire, increase my desperation, increase. Give me a revelation of how deeply I need you. Give me a revelation of how bankrupt are my own actions. You said without me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. I can't accomplish anything on my own. But Jesus, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. If you would give me strength, God, if you would tell me what to do. Come on, just pray, just pray. Just talk to Jesus right now. Just Activate your desperation before God right now. Activate it right now. Sometimes the sign that you've activated your desperation is you break the sound barrier. No more silent meditation. There's no such thing as desperate meditation. There's no such thing as a desperate man who's not willing to open his mouth. If you cry out after knowledge, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek them as silver, if you search for them as for hid treasure, but I'm telling you, he's close to the brokenhearted and he saves such as trust in him. He said a broken heart and a contrite spirit he has yet to deny. I'm telling you, if you come to that place of desperation and surrender, God will respond. He'll move heaven and earth out of his way to get to you. He will respond. He will hear from heaven. He will hear from heaven. He will hear from heaven. God will not remain passive when we come to that place of desperation and surrender. He will move. He will move. Hallelujah. Do it right now, God. 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 Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Hallelujah. Breakthrough in this place right now, Jesus. Breakthrough in this place right now, Jesus. Breakthrough in this place right now, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Open up the windows of heaven. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, he's not done right now. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's awakening desperation. He's awakening surrender. He's awakening desperation. He's awakening surrender. 
Hallelujah, hallelujah. Be lifted high. Yes, God. Be lifted high. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> 